This is the last of four episodes that have focused on the problems of evil. And this week, apologetics professor and former atheist Mary Jo Sharp joins us to talk about why atheists see the problem of evil as such a problem for Christians. And in the second half, Timothy and I take a look at an unexpected hit from the year 1995. The song is One of Us by Joan Osborne. If you're interested in digging deeper into the problems of evil, I encourage you to take a look at the book from Jeremy Evans entitled The Problem of Evil, published by our sponsor, B&H Academic. The Problem of Evil by Jeremy Evans. You can check this out and many other great apologetics resources from our friends at B&H Academic by visiting their website at bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. We're delighted today to have Mary Jo Sharp with us. She's here to talk with us about atheism and the problem of evil. She is a former atheist who first encountered apologetics as part of her own search for spiritual truth. And now she's a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University and the director of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. She's received her master's degree in apologetics from Biola University, as well as the bachelor's degree in music education from the University of Oklahoma. So Boomer Sooner, having lived in Oklahoma for several years. Thank you so much for joining us today on this program. Hey, it's so good to be with you. Well, we are serious about apologetics on this particular program, but we are also very, very serious about rock and roll. And so the question I have for you first is, if you could be part of any rock band in the entire history of rock and roll music, what band would it be? And more importantly, what would be your place, your part in that particular band? (laughs) Yeah, this is tough because I was a music major. <laughs> so just trying to pick one, right? So I, I'm going to fudge a little, not pick just one, but I'm going to go back a little bit to the roots of rock and roll. And it, my love would be to be part of the swing era bands. So Benny Goodman or Glenn Miller's band. But for your listeners who are like rock and roll, come on. If I had to pick a rock and roll band, I would be a saxophone player, a Barry saxophone player in Tower of Power. That would be my goal. Brown's band, if I could, but 
Power, uh, power, man. We just, James Brown is one of those really interesting people. David Bowie said, first time he heard James Brown, he said, I heard the voice of God when I heard James Brown. <laughs> I don't know what he was getting at in that, but I know with a lot of things of David Bowie's. But I'm with you on the swing era because the best musical training and expertise I got is at a time when I was in college, I was playing guitar in three different bands, and one of them was a contemporary jazz band, another one was a heavy metal band, and the other one was a classic swing jazz band, and that was where I was. The others I could play in my sleep. That one I had to be constantly on my toes to be able to keep up with everything that we were doing in that particular band, so I I get that. I love that era. I love that music. I love almost all music, but that's a challenging music as well. Well, at one point in your life, you were an atheist. And I'd just like to ask, what was it that drew you to atheism in the first place? What was it that seemed attractive about atheism at a particular point in your life that you chose that particular belief system, could we say, to follow that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me this, specifically because my new book has that title on there. So my atheism wasn't something that I sat around and contemplated. It wasn't something I thought about and said, oh, hey, I'm going to decide to be this because this makes the most sense. It was more of the outworking of my upbringing. So I was raised without church in my life, and I was raised in a part of the country that was more post-Christian than a lot of other places, especially where I ended up in the South, in you know, like Houston with Houston Baptist University. So my childhood was fairly void of Christianity and the influence of Christianity, except for what I saw on like TV and the movies. <laughs> so pretty shallow view of Christianity. But you know, even my school district made a concerted effort to remove overt Christian language from our public school experience. So we would have things like winter concerts rather than Christmas. So I think my atheism was the result of my upbringing. If people will allow the loose use of this term, it was what I call more of natural born atheist. I was just not raised to believe. And some atheists do take issue with me saying that I was a former unbeliever, a former atheist, because they say, no, you have to commit to it. You have to actually read. And, you know, it's Bertrand Russell and J.L. Mackey. And, you know, like you have to read these guys, Nietzsche and but then other people I dialogue with, sometimes when I say, hey, you know, atheism is a commitment to a belief system, and it's a system of thought. They say, no, 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 I'm just not a believer. I just don't believe in God. And that's how they are defining their atheism. So by a definition of being non-theist, that's what my atheism was. So I wasn't particularly drawn to it. I can say I was skeptical of religion because of what I saw on TV and the movies, especially I saw some scandals with televangelists in the 80s. And that really led me to question, well, what is religion about? And why do people need it? And I didn't really have a need for it in my life. So I was good. One of the things I think all of us ought to ask ourselves when we look at other belief systems and at our own, we ought to have a little bit of a sense of being able to ask ourselves and to consider in our own mind, 
what is compelling or attractive about the alternatives to my belief system? That's one of the things we have to be able to do if we cannot see that there's anything compelling or attractive about somebody else's belief system, we're probably never going to engage them as people and to engage them in a conversational way to understand where they're coming from. And so one of the things that I thought I would ask and just to explore for a little bit is just when you look at atheism now as a Christian, what about it seems compelling or attractive to you about atheism? I really love this question (laughs) because I think, like you said, you framed it so well. It's so important in considering our own worldview that we're able to consider what's compelling about other worldviews. And having come from a background void of Christianity, there were things that were compelling already to me, even after becoming a Christian. So I'm going to look at it from that perspective. And one of the things about atheism that is compelling is a social aspect of atheism, which is that you get a release from this sort of social club of Christian church, this closed community where if you don't fit in, you're kind of marginalized in some way or another. And that goes back to my own story of being, I came into the church in a Southern evangelical church, and there was a whole culture associated with that, of which I was completely unfamiliar due to my own upbringing. And so I didn't always fit in. I don't think Christians consider that, that sometimes our our Christian culture is unattractive to others in that when people look different from us, when they act different from us, when they don't fit our box of what we think they should be, especially me being a pastor's wife, (laughs) people do have expectations that they may not even be able to articulate, but they do have them. And me being an intellectual, I was always sort of distrusted, left out of things and marginalized. And so for me, being able to be released from that sort of closed community of Christianity, what I call the social club aspect, that's one. That's one attractive thing about atheism is you're released from that. Another thing would be the intellectual and academic acceptance that you receive upon saying that you do not believe in God. It's no shock to anyone probably listening that if you are not a believer in God, that you are viewed in general as more intellectual or more academically rigorous. And believers are generally viewed with suspicion and distrust, especially intellectually. Like, what's your angle? What are you getting at? What are you trying to make me believe? How are you using this? This is a cultural zeitgeist of our day. And we've had different cultural zeitgeists where Christians had the more intellectual authority in the past, but now it's a current trend or fashion, and it does marginalize people who believe in God. So atheism is more attractive in its acceptance in our society, which makes it easier to get research published. It makes it easier to get those academic positions at major universities. So there's another attractiveness. I think for me, the lack of moral authority is initially attractive as well. You know, other than the social contract of which I must abide by to live in a society, I get to decide my own morality. Nobody's telling me what to think. There's no God looking over my shoulder saying, hey, don't do this, do this. So that, I think, in of itself is quite attractive. And when we start digging through some of the more honest and raw atheist writings, you find that as well, is that it is attractive to be able to be captain and commander of my own ship. And it sounds quite liberating at first right? But the apologist in me wants to give a response to that very issue. (laughs) Because at first it sounds quite liberating, but then you start taking a deep look at what it means to have no basis for objective values, such as no basis for things as good and evil. 
And suddenly when you start to think through that, all those shiny promises of autonomy become very dimmed. And they become dim because you realize that the things you adamantly oppose as unjust or unfair don't have any grounding for necessarily calling them unjust or unfair. So you have to accept that in your, your worldview, the universe lacks good or evil. So everything that's ever happened to you or anyone you love or care about or the, you know, in the history of mankind, that's not a horrible evil. That's just the way things are. But I do see the initial attractiveness. You don't have to be accountable to anybody, generally speaking. But, you know, for me, morality and atheism is kind of like luck in a Vegas poker game. It's not only elusive, but it's also not a lady. So for all you guys and dolls fans out there, you'll know what I'm talking about. And so the best that I can do is pray. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Lucky if you've ever been a lady to begin with. Luck be a lady tonight. <laughs> so I think those are some, I mean, you've got the, the social club aspect is attractive, leaving that from Christianity. The intellectual academic appearance is more attractive. The lack of moral authority initially on the surface seems more attractive and then you get, again, back to the social acceptance. You have, in my experience, there's a better social acceptance outside of the church for where you are in your journey in life, for your struggle. And I think this is hugely attractive in atheism because it seems like you're more accepted for all the weird things that you're having to go through being a human to try to figure out how to be human. So along the way, you're dealing with your vices and you're dealing with these things that are normal to being human. And people who are atheists seem to have an easier time with that. And I'm just saying these things are, they seem this way. And, you know, people in the church come across as being more concerned with being right than being basically loving. And I believe that causes people to hide their vices, which, in, you know, ultimately inflames the vices. So until the church learns how to live more authentically while holding on to her core doctrines, She's going to continue to be unattractive in this way. And atheism is going to continue to have that sort of attractiveness socially. Well, one of the primary issues that college students in particular face, and I know you engage a lot with college students, and I've just found over and over one of the issues they face in terms of believing in Christianity and accepting the type of God that Christianity says is true is the problem of evil. And you deal with that in your book as one of the, the different topics that we have to be able to engage as Christians. And it's this, just this question of how can a good God allow evil in the world if God God is actually all good and all powerful. Well, I mean, what I want to ask first is why is this such a pressing issue for so many people? I think that right now we have a lot of people who that seems to be their number one hangup with Christianity, especially among college students. So why do you think it is that we have so many people who are so locked into that issue as the issue that supposedly overthrows any sort of belief in a theistic type God that is to say the personal God, such as we believe is true in Christianity. Yeah, I think this is great. Why is it so pressing? Not just handling the issue, but why is it such a pressing issue? And at first, I think it's pressing because it means that in the instance of college students, it means they're thinking. <laughs> they're thinking about important matters. And that's what we're supposed to encourage them to do at the university setting is that they're supposed to encounter you know, a broader spectrum of ideas in the world. And so for them 
to finally be thinking on this and having that space to just have the thought is really good. So I think it's pressing because this is the time in their life when they start to encounter these kind of ideas. Secondly, it may be on that note that this is the first time that these students have been challenged on a matter of on this matter of reconciling their belief in God with the existence of evil in the world. Now, this is from my own experience, and I know that there are pastors that have dealt with this, but from my own experience, I never encountered a pastor or a teacher in the church who dealt with this issue at any depth. So the jumping off point in church was always that God is good, hands down, accepted, and we taught from there. So I never learned why we think that's true about God's nature, and I never learned those arguments for that belief. And I certainly never heard anyone handling the arguments against belief in God, especially based on the existence of evil. So if a student has had the kind of church experience I've had, then this is an eye-opening moment for them in that they're being challenged on this issue, specifically going away to college and being around non-believing friends and professors who are not believers in God. So I think this is the first time for many of these students, they've really been challenged to think about their worldview and reconciling it. And then a third reason and a final, well, this isn't the final, but a third reason is that they live in an age when they have the world at their fingertips. And that is not just the good stuff. They also have faster access to some of the most horrific events that we're seeing in mankind. And they have this information shoved at them on a daily basis more so than we've ever had before. They've got it right in their hand. They get up in the morning and they're facing it first thing. So the access is not inherently bad, but it can be difficult for them to try to process everything that's coming at them. So especially when they haven't had much engagement on thinking about the world's evil and what that means for belief in God. So you're having all this evil thrown at you, but you've never really had experience in handling the argument. So my final thought would be that college students know that they're going to inherit this world from us. And they've got to figure out what they believe is true about good and evil. They have to figure that out, especially in the time where they have all this access to such highly politicized jargon and rhetoric in our world. It can be really difficult for them to understand, well, who do I go to? Who's an authority? Who do I trust? Because everybody seems to be just saying what's expedient or saying what's pragmatic for them or for their party. And so they, they've, you know, we've always had that. Every generation has to deal with their view of authority, but I think they have so much being thrown at them that it's hard to process. What do I even mean when I say evil? How do I know who's good or evil? I think one of the things you pointed out is so, so true that I see. I hear from college students over and over who basically feel a sense of betrayal, that nobody ever told me about this issue. And they usually go from that to a statement or to at least an assumption that nobody in the history of Christianity has ever dealt with this. And in fact, in some of the deconversion stories you hear, you have them saying, nobody's ever dealt with this issue of the problem of evil. And it's like, what? There have been hundreds. This has been something all the way through the history of Christianity that people have seen the issue and they have responded to it. And in fact, even secular philosophers admit that pretty much Alvin Plantinga laid it to rest as a philosophical problem. I'm not saying as an existential problem, but as a philosophical problem all the way back in the 1970s. He really laid it to rest in terms of the problem of evil being something that can somehow negate the existence of God or negate our belief in God. And yet what I find over and over 
is college students who have never heard anybody even raise the issue. And we've got to start raising the issue. We've got to talk about this because that's the dominant narrative that I hear anyway is nobody's ever dealt with this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. A lot of people have dealt with this. But what that communicates to me because they believe that is we have not communicated to them. We have not made it clear to them that Christians are aware of this issue and we have wrestled with it. And and so that brings us to this. The next question I had for you is how would you respond to a college student who says, I'm considering atheism because of the problem of evil in the world, which we we hear that over and over, at least I do, and I'm sure you do as well. College students who are saying, look, I, I see this issue. I've had a professor raise this issue. I have no answer for it. And it seems to that college student that the only option here is to reject the existence of God. What do you say to that particular college student when she comes to you? Yeah. Yeah, this is such a great question. And it's great that you brought up the deconversion stories that are popular where they're saying things like that. I've never heard this before. Nobody's ever dealt with this. And, you know, and anybody who studies philosophy of religion or, you know, philosophy knows that we've been talking about this for at least 2000 years, but we can trace it back further to Plato and Socrates and the Euthyphro dilemma. So, yeah, well, what I would say to a student who's considering atheism because of this issue is, first of all, I want to affirm them in their search. This is a very difficult issue, this this problem of evil and reconciling evil in the world with a good God. So I want to let them know that, yeah, this is one of the greatest objections to belief in God. I mean, you're kind of right on track with your thinking here. This is the hard issue to deal with. So I want to affirm them in that search and say there's no easy answer to it. There's no trite Christian phrase that can aptly respond to this issue, and it's not going to go away. The issue is not going to go away. So I want to let them know that I empathize with this search. And then I definitely need to start asking them questions about how they arrived at where they're at in this consideration. Like, so what was it that brought them here? If they're considering leaving Christianity, one worldview, to step into a wholly different worldview, how'd you get there? So first of all, what do you even mean that you're considering atheism by the problem of evil? It's just a basic what do you mean question. What do you mean by that? Give them a chance to clarify so we can get a little bit of the process. Now, like as they start to give you some answers, how do you know that is, you know, where are you getting that from? Those kind of questions are going to be helpful because, you know, one of the things that's going on here and that we really don't explore unless they're homeschooled possibly is what you even mean by evil. Where are you getting this term evil and how are you able to appropriate it to this conversation? You got to know what you mean when you say evil. I see that there's evil in the world, and so that makes me question God's goodness. Those are two concepts that you're using. Have you ever thought to think, where are you getting those from? And how do you know that those are real things or that they match some objective reality? Because without that grounding, we really don't have an argument. We really don't have an argument. We can't make this case. So I want to ask them, what do you mean by evil? What is their understanding of the problem of evil? Like you said, We've been treating this issue in Christianity and in atheist philosophy. I mean, it's just in philosophy in general for 2,000 years. So what's your understanding of the problem of evil? What have you read? What have you heard? And how have you come to this conclusion? And without trying to sound condescending, because <laughs> it's going to come across that way, and I don't mean to, I don't think many people have really done any work on this. Like you said, you know, you've got Alvin Plantinga who lays kind of waste to the logical problem of evil. 
And yet people still make the logical formation, if evil exists, therefore God cannot exist. That's the problem he solved. So people seem uninformed on it. So that's what I would ask is, well, what, what do you mean? Like, what do you know about the problem of evil? And, and how are you even, what's your understanding? How are you framing this? So then I want to, as I'm understanding where they're at, depending on what they say, I kind of want to steer them towards, well, what have you read in response to your question? <laughs> because there are Christian responses out there. So there are specific rebuttals to many different variations and forms that the question takes. Even Plantinga has a response to gratuitous evil. So he doesn't just stop at the logical argument, but the evidential argument. So he keeps going. So what have you read as far as a rebuttal? And then I would ask them to consider a world void of good and evil. So if you're going to say, I can't believe in God because of the amount of evil in the world, and you're going to say, okay, so therefore I'm stepping into an atheistic view of the world. We've got to explore that. What does that world look like? Because you can't just drag in Christianity and Christian ethics and Christian grounding into your atheist worldview. You've now got to establish what does that look like for me? And one of the questions I'll ask people is, is it livable? Can you live with the fact that there's no actual good or evil? And does that best explain the human experience? I actually had a, a college student sit next to me on a plane one time who made this very argument, I don't believe in good or evil. And he actually didn't know he didn't believe it. I had to help him get there. <laughs> and when he said, well, I'm basically atheist, I said, oh, okay. So we started exploring all these questions. And he, he came to the point where he said, I guess I'm a nihilist, you know, or a nihilist, however you pronounce it. But so he has a fatalistic view of the world. And I said, but the problem is I don't, I don't think you live as though that's true. I think you actually believe that there are good things in the world, like getting up in the morning and going to work or getting your degree is a good thing that has good consequences. What does that mean to you? And as he was working through it, he realized he didn't have a, a coherent worldview. He couldn't live what he's saying he professed. So I would, I would take him to that. Like, are you willing to go all the way there? Because even when I wasn't a Christian, I didn't believe in what I would now know to be the undergirding of atheism. I didn't believe that there's at the base of the universe, there's no good or evil, you know, a la Bertrand Russell or, or even the popular Richard Dawkins who likes to comment in philosophy. So let's suppose that somebody raises this question specifically to do with the tragedy that we've seen this year with the coronavirus. How somebody says, you know what? I don't think that a world in which the coronavirus exists can be a world in which God also exists. And I think that's an issue that we, I've already heard a few people bring that up. I think we're going to start hearing that question more and more. This is a once in a generation, once in a century perhaps, event that we have seen in our lifetimes that will shape the psyches of our children and of our college students. It's going to shape them for generations to come. And so I think this will become gradually one of the questions that we hear is how can there be a good God in a world that lets something like this loose in the world, we might say. And so going specifically to that particular issue, how can we help people when we start hearing that issue, when we start having people reflect on this? How can we help them to understand this in a context of a Christian worldview? How do we understand the coronavirus and the, the tragedy that it has brought about within a Christian worldview? Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of unpacking to do there. <laughs> so as you, if you've been listening, then you notice I tend to try to get back to the base level 
arguments of how we're establishing things like a Christian worldview. So the first thing that I would ask a person who's talking about coronavirus and the global pandemic we're seeing in relation to you know being evidence for no God is I need, again, better clarification. What does this person mean when they say a global pandemic is evidence there's no God? I'm not asking that facetiously. It's actually quite important because for a person like me, who I'm teaching a court, an eight-word course on the problem of evil, I might go off on different views of natural evil versus moral evil, the kinds of questions and responses philosophers have given over the years and theologians, theodicy, the reconciliation of, of God and evil within the Christian context. But we all have to remember that might not be what's being asked. They may not be asking for the philosophical argument. So we need a clarification. And the reason I say that is the second the second thing that I would do is because people are getting unnerved. They're getting unsettled by something this large in the world of which they have no control. And we got to remember that that's kind of at the base of what, what is going on, is that we're getting unnerved. People are losing jobs. People are losing financial support. You're having to consider, how am I going to feed my family? So these are the kinds of questions that are unraveling us. And the pandemic is an in-your-face reminder of the fact that the control over our lives that we think we have through money, power, or whatever is fleeting and possibly illusory. But also, I think what brings this question up, and, and I, I really like to dig back into why are you asking this question to begin with, is that it is a reminder that death is always with us and that it will eventually come to every one of us. And I think that when you get into situations in which you have to face the mortality of man and the lack of control over the universe, that brings up those questions of, is there a God? And if so, does he care about us? And what is he doing in the world? So you get questions that come back to man's autonomy and God's sovereignty. But if a person's really unnerved by this situation, which is what I think is tending to go on, they may just need pastoral care. They need us to incarnate Jesus to them, to be his hands and his feet, to show them love, to show them patience, kindness, mercy, but also peace. And that setting this down in the Christian context, why do Christians have peace about disasters in the world and death in the world? Because of the Christian narrative, because of creation, fall, and redemption, that God has shown us he is doing something about the evil in this world. He's shown us through this event of cosmic significance, ultimate cosmic significance, which is Jesus's death on the cross and rising from the dead, that not only does he care ultimately for us, but that he's doing and has done something about it, which is he has conquered death. He has conquered disease. He has conquered all of these things of which frighten us, and he has risen from the dead. So he's showing us that there is an answer, that there is a solution to these problems. And that is why Christians can offer peace and hope in a time where it seems like there's no control over anything. We, we know that God's still in control. He's still sovereign. And he's shown it to us in human history through what he's already done. So th that's the power of the Christian testimony and of the Christian worldview the philosophical framework which we find ourselves in in these times of crisis, because this is not the first pandemic. This is not the first world catastrophe. I mean, we've got the Lisbon earthquake in 1755, which rocked everybody's world on All Saints Day. And you've got Auschwitz at the height of what we thought was 
the human control over nature and mankind. Are we, the Germans were intellectually superior. Their art was amazing. The technology was great. And what did they end up doing with that? One of the most horrific things we've ever seen in mankind. That's us. That's what we are. And so that these kind of things have happened before. And when we see that even in Lisbon, we're like, what are you doing, God, this earthquake? But then you go to Auschwitz and you're like, wait a minute, we thought we were better than this. As humans, we thought we could control this, that we would do what was good. And even we aren't doing what's good. So that's why the Christian narrative is so important and why it gives us so much hope is that God has not left us as a cosmic orphan. He still cares about us. And he's shown that to us in his own death and suffering on the cross and then defeating that. Now, somebody might say, but Okay, but that's the Christian worldview, right? I don't believe in that. Well, okay, flip this whole issue on its head, right? Flip it on its head. So here we are faced with a pandemic. And this is going to get a little rough for people because when you flip this worldview, it gets kind of ugly like Auschwitz did. In a world void of good and evil and of the value, a grounding for the value of human life, this pandemic is ultimately no different than, say, a forest fire that burns through the trees to allow life to continue in other ways. And I know that sounds really harsh, but think about this. I mean, the, the trees are burned, and the, but the fire provides nutrients back to the earth. It's the ever-evolving process of the natural world. There's no good or evil in it. It's just the way things are. So if you've got humans as just another animal, another part of the natural world, pandemics and viruses are also just a part of the natural world evolving. And there's nothing wrong with it, no right with it, it just is. And therein lies the issue. The questioner doesn't seem to believe those premises, right? The questioner doesn't seem that that's what they would think, that that's true. So now you have to try to get that grounding of the concepts of right and wrong, good or evil. You know, in short form, we did why the Christians have hope and why their world provides a resource in these times. Atheism does not have that hope nor the resource these are just the way things are, and they're meaningless. So that's the difference. And that's, like I said, that's a harsh reality. I'm not going to offer that to somebody who is grieving over the loss of their job or their loved one. I'm not going to just overtly offer that. But I think it needs to be considered so that you have these resources in times of trouble and struggle and pain. I think that's really good what you're saying there, particularly because what you're pointing out is the very assertion that a pandemic is a bad thing almost necessarily assumes some part of a theistic worldview. You can't have a truly atheistic worldview, a worldview that rejects any transcendent right and wrong, any transcendent value, and simultaneously assert that the death of hundreds of thousands of people is a bad thing. You can't have both of those. One or the other of those has to go at that point. And I think that one of the ways that we do the person who's in suffering that we help that you really pointed out well is that we hang out close to the cross of Christ. That's what we do. We hang out close to the cross of Christ with the person who's suffering, with the person who's simply intellectually rejecting this, the person who is not necessarily suffering, but they are seeing this as as an intellectual demonstration of the falsity of Christianity, what we have to point out to them is that you can't have both of those. This can't be a horrible thing and have an atheistic worldview. You got to have one or the other. Either this isn't that bad after all, or you've got to borrow something 
from a theistic worldview of some sort borrow something from theism. And I think you did a great job in, in your book, Why I Still Believe. So let's talk about that for just a little bit. Why I Still Believe, a former atheist reckoning with the bad reputation that Christians give a good God. Tell us about this particular book and what you were wanting to accomplish in that book and what you see as some of the, the highlights you'd want people to understand and to know about that particular book. Ah, thank you for asking me about that. I wrote this book to tell the story of my own struggle with hypocrisy in the church and then the arguments that led me back to God. So the hypocrisy of the believers I've noticed has become more like an increasingly an increasing objection to the existence of God. And I have experience with that. Having been a pastor's wife in several churches, I, I'm like, man, I see it and I understand it. And it actually caused me to begin to doubt what I believed because I said to myself, hey, these people don't really believe what they say they believe or they would act like it was true. And that caused emotional doubt, which led to intellectual questioning and and even a desire to leave Christianity at one point, maybe not even to find it as true. So the book is about my journey through that process of thinking on those issues. But I was approached to write it in a narrative form. And when I was approached to do that, I was like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's way too personal. Academics, apologists, philosophers, we like to write stuff and let you consider it but not necessarily let you into our own interior struggles with things. So not everybody, but that's tougher, I would assume, for many of us. So I didn't want to write it because it was just so personal. I'd rather have you look at the arguments and, and just make your own conclusions rather than to come into my mind and see how I struggled with things. But yet I was convinced that that was something that people needed to see. They needed to see a person who had considered deconverting. They needed to see a person who was fed up with certain things in the church and with Christians and with the way that Christians would say one thing and do another, who was heartbroken by what she found in the church, that it wasn't what Jesus was talking about, about how we should treat each other and love one another or Paul, and yet couldn't walk away. I just couldn't walk away because I found Christianity to be true. And once I dug into these arguments, I started seeing why Christianity is true, it started to broaden my understanding of why people in the church do what they do and that sinner-saint tension that's in the church. So what I'm hoping that people will receive or they'll get from the book is that, first of all, that I don't wrap everything up for them. It's an invitation to journey with me and that you, I'm not trying to tell you what to think or what to believe. At the end, in fact, I have a couple of chapters. One's called No Tidy Endings. And that's specifically to tell you that I'm not going to wrap it up for you. This is your invitation to think on these matters and decide for yourself what you believe. And then crash landing. <laughs> it's like, all right, now go. You know, we're both out of the book now. And so now you have to get back into your world. And yeah, so it just it's an invitation for you to consider some of these tough issues of life, because at some point in your life, you're going to have to deal with the pain and suffering of mankind. You're going to have to deal with what you believe, why people in the church don't always act the way that we see laid out by Paul in his letters to the various churches about how we're supposed to treat one another. But he's writing those letters because they're not treating each other that way. So <laughs> it's an invitation to come along and see where I ended up with these issues and to consider, as we've been discussing, what an alternative view would look like. Because as I've heard deconversion stories on uh, social media, read them, heard them on the airwaves, boy, I'm dating myself with airwaves. Anyway, <laughs> heard them on podcasts. I found that I'm being told what people 
everything that they're against, they're against this about Christianity. They thought this is wrong. They thought this is wrong. They thought that is wrong, but they're really not considering what they're going to and justifying that and giving me, well, what's your warrant for that belief? What's you know, what, what convinced you that this is true? So I'm not getting a whole lot of what they're going to. So part of the book is showing people that you also need to consider that. What are you going to? And have you considered that what that world looks like? And can you, is that livable? Can you live like that? So, um, that's, that's sort of an in a nutshell, and I, I hope people will start to see that the hypocrisy of the believers doesn't negate the truth of Christianity. Well, be sure to visit MaryJoSharp.com today. That's MaryJoSharp.com and pick up Mary Jo's book, Why I Still Believe. It's a great book that you need to pick up and to put in the hands of other people and perhaps even people that are struggling with what they perceive to be the hypocrisy of Christianity and of Christians. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth. It's been great to have you with us. Hey, thank you for having me. Welcome to that part of the program that you have all been waiting for with great expectation. (laughs) That is Toy Box Hero. Yes, that time in the program when we take our children's toys and we place them into combat with one another to the death such that we find out which toys are stronger. And so, Garrick, what do you have today and from which child do you have this toy? Today, unfortunately for whoever you're presenting, today we go with my middle child, which would be my son, which his toys are far more violent than any of my other children's. So today he picked... For this battle, he picked the A-Wing Starfighter, (laughs) but he really wanted to make sure that he secured victory. So standing on the, I guess, the hood, the front of the A-Wing Starfighter is is Rey with her lightsaber. So, Timothy, this isn't just an A-Wing, right? This is not the old RZ-1 a-wing interceptor from you know the old rebellion this is the new model the rz-2 a-wing interceptor which was used by the resistance during the you know the first order and resistance war and all that kind of stuff so this is even the upgraded version from from the old days and this is the one that has, of course, because it's the RZ2, it's got the green as opposed to the dark red for the RZ1s. I think that pretty much that's your distinguishing. I don't know what else is different. I'm sure there are upgraded guns of some sort, but it's green versus red. So if you put them together, it's Christmas. So you got the green and the <laughs> red. Well, mine is a somewhat different one. And it is because it's from my oldest child, who much like your oldest child, but in totally different ways as well, I'm having a hard time coming up with <laughs> toys uh, from my eldest child, who is yeah. in 20s. And she chose also a Christmas present that she got. And uh, she chose this one and said, nothing can beat this. And so here's what it is. It is she got coffee thing. So this is (laughs) this is a self-heating gooseneck coffee pot right here. (laughs) So that's what she got. So what here's what Uh, we can do with this. This I mean this heats water really, really hot. Yeah. And and you can aim it really, really well. So you can aim the water really well and it could be Mm -hmm. really, really hot. And so what we will do, we're going to to burn Ray. We're going to to aim water, boiling Mm. water at Ray. And we are going to burn her. The lightsaber can't deflect water. Tell me one time a lightsaber has ever deflected water. A lightsaber cannot deflect water. And so so let's say I grant you 
that the hot water has now gotten rid of Ray. <laughs> you still have a giant armored shooting starfighter that is probably pretty impervious to yes with uh, a pilot that cannot stay awake yeah, without no. coffee yeah no yeah okay that's <laughs> so, true. so there that's you, true. he can't stay Listen. awake there's no way this pilot can stay awake without java juice yes so. <laughs> possibly possibly i'm just gonna say if my pedicure manicure set couldn't defeat the kangaroo that i'm gonna say there's no way that the pot of coffee and you know me i love coffee like coffee is my jam um um, I love that she got the good gooseneck, especially in the matte black, which is uh, that's very close to the model I have. So, so and I have probably a, it's armor plated if it's matte yeah, black. Maybe, as well. maybe so it deflects the. Yeah, I have a lot of love for that, but there's no way that I'm going to take an L on this one. No way, not if I couldn't. If I couldn't give a pedicure to the kangaroo, you you don't get to defeat the A wing with hot water. So but we can throw it. We can throw you, it through yeah, the, the engine of the A wing, and and we're going to disable an engine at that point. So we will disable an engine and have a sleeping pilot. Yeah. So you have yeah. an A wing uh-huh. with a disabled engine and a sleeping pilot. Without this, I'm, so I'm still uh, really really not convinced. Really not convinced. So yeah, I'm just gonna I'm declaring victory. I don't care what you say. If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. Well, for the last four episodes, we've been talking about the problem of evil. That's just been what we focused on. That's a really big issue. And it seems like you all think it's a big issue because these have actually been some of the most popular episodes of Three Chords and the Truth, the apologetics podcast that we've actually ever had. I mean, these have these have been downloaded by the thousands, these different programs that we've done over the past several weeks. So we're excited about that. We're glad about that. We're not glad about evil. We're not happy about evil, but we are glad that you're interested in these. Yeah, but we're not glad that you love evil and that you're super that you know that you want to know all about it but you know if it sells you know whatever one of the concerns that I have always when we talk about the problem of evil, and this has come up several times as we've talked about it, but I think it's a concern that we ought to have about the problem of evil, is that amidst all of these philosophical discussions and even of these kind of evidential and existential discussions of the problem of evil, that it's possible for us to get distracted from the cross. Because you can make a case that evil could exist in a world with a good God. You can make that case logically without the cross of Jesus Christ. But whenever you can do anything that has to do with God without the cross, that should alert you that something could be going wrong. And I think if we ever look at this apart from the cross, something is going wrong at that point. Yeah, because God's triumph, right? His victory over evil, sin, pain, 
suffering, death itself, it happens through the incarnation of the Son of God, of Jesus and his death on the cross. When I think about that in terms of music, I think of a song that really is kind of a, a one-hit wonder of sorts, and it's by Joan Osborne, and the name of the song is One of Us. Joan Osborne actually didn't even write the song, which is kind of interesting. It was written by Eric Bazilian of the band The Hooters, which is one of those bands that always almost made it, but never quite made it. Eric Bazilian of the Hooters, he said that he wrote that song in one night. He said, it's the quickest song I ever wrote, and I wrote it to impress a girl, which worked, he said, because we're now married and have two children. So this song, even if it produced nothing else, it produced a marriage and two kids, <laughs> even if it didn't produce anything else. A lot of music did that. Gone out of face. What would it look like and would you want to see? If seeing meant that you would have to believe. The song goes in the lyrics, if you remember them. It says, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? In other words, there's this notion of God is, is glorious and maybe even fearful. Would you call it to his face? And then if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints? And all the prophets, there's this notion of this fearfulness of God and a recognition that to believe in God calls for other beliefs. And yet then the song poses this question, what if God, this God who is glorious and, and maybe a little scary, what if he is, what if he was one of us. And to understand this song and why it resonated with Joan Osborne, I think it helps us to actually look at Joan Osborne, the person who sang the song, made it initially popular. She actually was born just a few miles from us right now. She was born in Anchorage, Kentucky, not Anchorage, Alaska, Anchorage, Kentucky. It's a very different place. Anchorage, Kentucky is basically a suburb of Louisville, about five or six miles from my house. And Joan Osborne was raised in Louisville, raised Roman Catholic, and she's been shaped by this kind of Roman Catholic background. And also another interesting connection to Kentucky is it begins with a folk hymn in the recorded version that was recorded in Eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian areas of Eastern Kentucky called the Heavenly Airplane. And it, so it's, and this is a song about God coming in judgment is what it's about. Oh, one of these nights and about 12 o'clock, this over's gonna be land rock. Saints, we all tremble and cry for pain, for the Lord's gonna come in his heavenly airplane. 
Her religion, in her own words, is that I have a spiritual space inside. That is her religion, (laughs) is I have a spiritual space inside. And yet even she, with this very vague and problematic spirituality, she even admits it's hard not to think there was some sort of creator. I find that fascinating. She says this in an interview. Even though I'm skeptical, it's hard not to think that there was some sort of creator. But at the same time, she completely rejects the God of Scripture. So the tension that we mentioned in the song, right, between God and his glory and God as one of us, the thing is, is that for believers, right, for Orthodox Christian believers who do not reject the God of Scripture, this tension for us is resolved in the incarnation and the suffering of Jesus, right? And as we've been talking about, Timothy, as we've as we've said, that the problem of evil and suffering, that that problem is itself resolved in the incarnation, in the suffering, in the death of Jesus. But it's a, a tension and a problem for, for Joan in this song. Yeah, and as we look at this, we're reminded of uh, this tension, as you've said, it's resolved only in the God of Scripture. And that's the fascinating thing is that she rejects the God of Scripture. (laughs) And yet at the same time, she's haunted by this song that actually hints at the resolution of this. Because what we have in Jesus Christ is a God who never ceases to be glorious, never ceases to be sovereign and powerful, but he does become one of us. And it's only in the God who is one of us that the problem of evil gets solved. And that's one of the things that I just, I want us to land on to do with the problem of evil is the fact that only in the God who became one of us without ever leaving behind his glory in the sense of him being truly glorious, though that glory was veiled in Jesus Christ, though he he willingly limited his knowledge and his and some of the kind of benefits we might say of deity, that he was still glorious and he was still divine. He was still fully God. And so God does truly become one of us without becoming anything less than he was before. And it's only in the suffering God that the problem of evil is resolved. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, when he was imprisoned toward the end of World War II, he was in prison. He had a very good understanding that he was probably going to die. There was very little chance of him being released from prison. He had been engaged and yet hadn't married. So his fiance was out there somewhere. He didn't know what was happening to her. He was a torn and broken man at that point. And yet, There was a resilience in him as well. He wasn't in despair. And in the midst of all this, I remember reading in one of his letters, he said these words. He said, only the suffering God can help. As he's feeling these hints of despair, but not giving up, as he's recognizing the brokenness of his own situation, he says, only the suffering God can help. And ultimately, that's, I think he's hinting at, that's the answer to the problem of evil, is that God himself has entered into our suffering. There is a place and a depth of pain where only the suffering God can help. And there is a level in the problem of evil at which only the fact that God himself has entered our suffering ultimately can help. What would it be and would you call it to his face? 
1996, a year after Joan Osborne released this, is when Prince released his version of One of Us on his movie Emancipation. And it was his first album after the end of his contract with Warner Brothers, which had resulted in him changing his name to a symbol, all of those things like that. And this album, Emancipation, it is packed with religious and sexual imagery all the way through. And one of the songs he does on it is One of Us. He changes the words a little bit where it says, what if God was a slob like one of us? He says, what if God was a slave like one of us? He records some of the lyrics differently, but it's still, he does this particular song, One of Us, on his album Emancipation, an incredible version of the song. And tragically, later in 1996, his son Amir died as an infant, and he had went through a lot of personal struggles. And by the year 2000, he had divorced. And then in 2001, Prince became a Jehovah's Witness. And he, even in his songs, he began singing the lyrics differently after this. He had some sort of a real turning. I don't think we can call it a conversion in a Christian sense, because it's toward a, a cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who don't believe that Jesus actually was God in human flesh. But he had some sort of a turning in his life, and he became very, very devout. Out. In fact, there are people who say Prince showed up on their doorstep going door to door handing out the watchtower. He just actually did this, uh, would show up on people's door. you imagine? <laughs> I mean, what would Prince on my doorstep handing me cult literature? <laughs> just, but a lot of people, there are several reports of this and people that just invited him in, some of whom didn't know it was him until afterwards, and he was trying to convert them to become Jehovah's Witnesses. And just as a side note, he really became very generous during that time. In fact, and all the way up to, to his death, he... In fact, in, on the west side of Louisville is the first library that was ever built of the Carnegie Libraries for African Americans. And it's on the west side in Louisville. And in the early 2000s, that library was just about to go under. It was about to get defunded and to go under completely. And Prince gave a very large anonymous donation to that library. And actually, it's still because of the money that Prince gave that that library that serves an African-American community on the West End of Louisville is still actually in operation today. God had a name. What would it be? And would we call it to its face? If we were faced with him and all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one All the things that happened to Prince, they sound really good if we're just going after goodness and religion. And what I find fascinating in these two versions of the song, Joan Osborne and Prince, is that Joan Osborne, she went one trajectory into a kind of a vague spirituality away from Roman Catholicism. Prince went another direction toward very devout commitment in a cult to a very specific spirituality. And I find it interesting that you get two people singing this song, one of whom went one direction and one of whom went another direction. That's fascinating to me. It's probably why I find Prince's version so much more interesting than Joan Osborne's is because of the fact that, yeah, she's gone into this vague spirituality that this kind of skeptical reflection, all that, it kind of makes sense. But Prince, he is singing the song about God becoming one of us when he has become part of a religion in which God never became one of us. 
And I find that to be such a fascinating thing about him doing this song. Yeah. In fact, that's the common thread between the two artists, right? That in their different ways, in the spiritual, religious path that they followed, flowing in opposite directions, they still dismiss one of the central truths which we hold to, right? They both miss the fact that there is a a faith, there is a historical belief system, tradition, religion in which God did become one of us. And that's the historical Christian faith that holds to this essential historical reality. And it's a a reality that both Prince and Joan Osborne sing about and yet don't believe. And in Prince, you have somebody very devout, very religious. In Joan Osborne, you have somebody who really isn't religious. And yet, both of them miss the truth of Jesus. And it shows us that religion is not the answer because Prince had religion. But it also shows us that a rejection of organized religion, that's not the answer either, because that's what Joan Osborne has done. What we are called to is a deep faith in Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh. And that brings us back around to the problem of evil. And the only true and final solution to the Epicurean trilemma, the fact that God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil exists. The only real solution to that is that the all-good, all-powerful God entered into human flesh in Jesus. He lived a human life. He died a human death, but he was raised from the dead. And though he was human, though he was one of us, he never ceased to be God. And he has entered into and shared in our suffering. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. written by Eric Bazilian of the band The Hooters, which is one of those bands that always almost made it, but never quite made it. They opened for a lot of huge acts. They did a lot of different, uh, did a lot of touring and everything like that, but they really never made it at all I, as a band. I never 
heard of them. Never, ever. I just they at actually all. opened for as in looking in this, they they opened for or were involved with a bunch of other acts. They were kind of like the Forrest Gump of of nineties bands. They were connected to everybody, but they never really wait. rose to any prominence. Wait, at that point. wait, wait, wait. Okay, we can we rewind this? <laughs> what? What? Well, I mean, like, explain Gump, the in, reference. What? Yeah, in the movie, Forrest... he shows up in all these different historical. Oh, events, okay, but he's I got gotcha. you. Really, that's he's right. Not the center of any of them. He totally get it now. Shows up and in all these different historical events and you're like he doesn't seem like he belongs there he just now shows up now (laughs) that you've explained it it's an excellent (laughs) reference that everyone's gonna be like yes and there and everyone will use it from now on but yeah you had to get us there first 